What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both with their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful online businesses. Today, I am sitting down with Derek Anderson and David Spinks. Derek is the co-founder of Startup Grind, a global community of entrepreneurs meeting each other in person and at conferences. And today he runs a business called Bevy, which allows companies to host and run thousands of real-world community events like he did with Startup Grind. David is the VP of community at Derek's company, Bevy. He's also the founder of CMX, which is a business he built after realizing the ironic fact that there are thousands of people like myself all over the world who are building and organizing communities, but none of them are actually talking to each other because they're not part of a community themselves. So he built CMX to fix that. David, Derek, welcome to the Anti-Hackers Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you both on here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Derek, all right, we're going to run a tight ship here. Derek, you go first. David, you you follow up. Excited to be here. <laughs> all right, you go. <laughs> Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. So there's a lot of similarities between the three of us. Probably the most striking one is that we've all started communities. Uh, but specifically, I started a community, Indie Hackers. I ran it as a business until it was bought by a bigger company, Stripe, where I work today. And David, you did the same thing. You recently sold your community, CMX, to Derek's company, Bevy. So we're really similar in that respect. This show is usually about people who are doing things the other way around, people who quit their jobs as employees to strike it out and become founders. What's it like going in the opposite direction and no longer being a founder? It's definitely a lot of change, different expectations, different pressures. I think as a founder, you're constantly thinking about how are we getting to that next stage? Are we going in the right direction? You feel a lot of the weight on your shoulders to make all those kinds of directional decisions. And so no longer being a founder definitely feeling a weight lifted that it's not all on my shoulders. It's mostly on Derek's shoulders. Yeah, it's his, it's his responsibility now. <laughs> yeah, it's Derek's, Derek's responsibility. <laughs> but there's also unique pressures that I wouldn't have as a founder. As a founder, you have a lot of freedom that the other side of that coin of having to make the decisions is that you get to make the decisions and you get to kind of choose a direction. You don't really have others that you're necessarily answering to. Now, I'm not my own boss, and I do have to consider other people's goals, other people's direction, and, and the direction that Derek wants to take things and, and align with that, which thankfully, we have been very aligned on the direction of things and spent a lot of time making sure that that was true before moving forward with the acquisition. You have a much better job title than me. I think you were VP of community at, Ve- at Bevy. <laughs> yeah, I think mine. I'm like chief indie hacker at Stripe or something completely silly. Uh, <laughs> I think that what you're saying is is very true. There's a very different type of pressure when you're a founder that you just don't have as an employee. But at the same time, I think when you come into a company through an acquisition, at least for me, I feel like this intense pressure to like make sure the acquisition is a success. Like I don't want Patrick from Stripe to be disappointed that he bought indie hackers. Do you feel the same with CMX and Bevy? Yeah, absolutely. I just think a reminder, that- David, that I'm, I'm on this podcast too. So just want you know, I'm listening <laughs> in on everything you're saying. Derek, if you want to just take a walk around the block, we'll, <laughs> we'll call you when we're ready. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's pressure from multiple angles. Um, there's definitely the pressure to want to make it successful and to have <laughs> Derek and the rest of the team you know, feel really good and excited about the decision because they're taking a risk on us. There's also pressure from my team that I made the right choice for the employees of CMX who all came over with us, that they're happy with the work they're doing and with the direction of CMX. And then, of course, there's a, the pressure from the community and wanting to make sure that you do right by them, which is the biggest concern ultimately and risk when you have a community be acquired is the community has a lot of questions about how things will change. Will we still be community-driven and, and focused on the community? And so we, we've definitely put a lot of effort into making sure we communicate that stuff really clearly and we're really transparent and that we continue to be 
community driven. Derek, what about you from the other side of things? I know that buying a company, actually making an acquisition has to be stressful. And I say that because for me, just hiring a contractor is stressful. So I can't imagine buying an entire company. What goes into that? uh, And how did it feel to actually go through this process? Well, I think the whole thing sort of started from the right place, started where David and I had a lot of mutual respect for each other and had developed a friendship. And that's not necessarily the norm. I think sometimes these things happen really fast and sort of sort of spur of the moment. Uh, I would also give David a lot of credit. I'm probably more loose and fast and David's much more methodical and I think patient and in I think sort of driving a lot of the questions up front of what is this going to look like. And, and I do this sometimes and I think it's a good exercise when you are going to employ one of your friends which is not really advisable. I highly recommend not doing that in, in almost any situation. But when I do do that, I always sit down with them and I'm like, look, here's the worst case scenario. Like six months from now, we hate each other. I fire you or you quit or something. And what happened? Like what had to happen for that to happen? And how do we avoid that? And so I think David and I discussed all different types of scenarios and it was exhaustive. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for that level of detail at this point. And it felt great when it was completed. And it felt great when we got to announce it. It felt great when we had the really positive response from the community. I think we didn't get a single piece of negative feedback about it, which of course you you hope for that, but you don't I don't think that's a realistic expectation. And so it's been, you know, and it's been really fun to spend more time with David and his team and to learn from them. And and for us to, to get better overall. And we've taken some of their values and tried to, you know, adopt some of ours to 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 better match what they had, which in many cases they had, you know, better way of describing things or better way of doing certain pieces of marketing or you know, there's just all these things that we're learning from them that's that's helping us get better too. So another similarity between us, besides the fact that David and I have sold our companies to bigger companies, is that All of us are involved in communities. All of us have started communities. But the people listening to this podcast aren't necessarily obsessed with building communities. If they have one thing in common, it's that they want to be founders. And being a founder is really freaking hard. There's a million things to do. So a question for both of you, maybe David, you could go first. Why should founders care at all about communities? I mean, I think every company is a community. So from the very start of building your company, what you're doing is actually building a community. It's a community with the intention of growing and driving profit and growing a team and providing a lot of value to customers. But uh, it starts with a founder or founders with an idea that goes out and convinces other people that this idea is worth investing in and spending time on and, and being a part of. They get people to join their team. That team is going to have a set of values. They have a common interest, a common goal, a common mission. It's all the things that are that we know to be um, what makes a community. So from the very start, I think founders need to be thinking about not just how do we build a successful business, but how do we build a successful community, a place where people feel connected where they feel aligned with that mission, where they feel safe, where they can express themselves safely and communicate safely. Those are the things that also make really successful businesses. Now that's on like a cultural values kind of mission and and brand level in 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 a practical level of how it can actually help a company achieve its goals. I, I think that community is the future of how businesses are working. And I shared this today. I think like an interesting way of thinking about it is companies have traditionally formed as uh, or functioned as sort of like authoritarian governments in a way. Like they centralize power. The team owns everything. The team decides everything. And then they distribute their product and their marketing and things out to the customer. And what we're seeing is the shift to like the democratization of businesses and marketing where you have your brand, you have your product, you have your marketing, and then you have these customers who want to be involved. 
They want to be advocates. They want to help you improve your product. They want to help bring more people in. And we're seeing more and more companies now actually give control and give power and autonomy to their customers and to these advocates and ambassadors and contributors to empower them to be a part of the business, to be a part of the brand. And so, you know, step one is building a strong sense of community, something that people feel like they belong to and they want to be a part of. And then step two is looking for those opportunities to activate those people, give them the opportunity to contribute to your mission and contribute to your objectives. And if you do that, you can actually scale up your business and all the parts of your business in incredible ways with with relatively extremely low costs, right? If I'm a marketer and I'm trying to reach 10,000 people in real life, right? Actually try to build connections with them through offline interactions. I can either hire a thousand people all over the world to host events, or I can empower our community members to self-organize and create events. And now I can actually have touch points with 10,000 customers and be spreading that brand in a very on the ground grassroots kind of way with a relatively small team. So it's that exponential value of community that I think is a real opportunity for businesses. As a founder, you know, day one, you've got a million different things to do. It's really hard to focus on something that might not pay off for a while, like building a community. Is that true? Should founders start thinking about communities from day one, or is it something they should put off until later? Yeah, I mean, I think the quality of the community you build around your business will translate to the quality of your business. So if you build a culture in your business that doesn't really value the voice of your customers and the people who are taking that early leap on you, that's going to build a foundation that as your company grows, that'll just become part of the values that you have, that you don't value community. So I think like by starting out with a fundamental belief and investment in community, what you're doing is creating a strong foundation for the future of your business. So as you get more customers, as you grow, that value continues to show itself and, and continues to be a part of what kind of company you're building. So it really depends what kind of company you want to build. There are people that want to just build an app, have very little interaction with customers, but just get kind of passive income. And that's all they want. They just basically want passive income. They're not really, they don't have a grand mission. They're just trying to make a little bit of money. If that's the case, then yeah, maybe you don't really need to invest in community. But I think I haven't met too many founders like that. And most of the founders I meet are building something because they're really passionate about it, because they're trying to make a meaningful impact on the world. They're trying to solve uh, an important problem or a problem that, that they've experienced. And, and so the kind of company they build and how they interact with people and the experience they create for employees and customers is going to be really important to them. So investing in community is for those kinds of companies, I think a non-negotiable. And if you're an indie business owner, especially in the early days, you have to. Your product is probably still really minimal. It's probably got a whole lot of issues and doesn't solve all the problems. So the early adopters who are there are only willing to overlook those things and stick around and continue to be involved because they believe in you and your mission and they feel like they're a part of something. And so community is kind of a tool that can keep people engaged through those early tough times. Make sure you have consistent communication with those users and customers so that you're learning how the product needs to be improved and building a foundation that will help you get to that point where the product is actually selling itself and has reached the point where people are there just for the product. That's such a good point. A lot of indie hackers ask this question, how do I compete with a bigger business that has more features than I do and more resources, a larger team, and they charge less money than I do? And I think community is a, is a good answer. A lot of times these early adopter users you have are very excited to talk to you. They're very excited to talk to each other. And a bigger company might not take the time to really nurture those relationships. I want to understand how both of you guys ended up where you're at, but you guys had two wildly different paths and that only just converged recently. So we're going to go one at a time. Uh, Derek, let's start with you. You are the creator of Startup Grind, which is an incredible in-person community of entrepreneurs and founders meeting all over the world in person. What was sort of the first step you took on that path? 
So 10 years ago, uh, I was working in electronic arts. I decided to leave my job. I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to be more creative. Um, and over the next four or five years, I sort of stumbled through many different types of businesses, different ideas, different products that I had built with you know the teams that I had assembled around me. And most of them were totally unsuccessful, uh, other than the fact that they launched, but you know, didn't really ever have any overly passionate users or customers or community around those products. And, uh, and amongst doing that, I started hosting an event series in my office with some other founder friends. And we called it Startup Grind, uh, because that's sort of what my the experience that I was going through reminded me of. Um, you know, five or 10 people came to the first event and five or 10 people came to the second event. And it sort of grew slowly uh, and was not really intended to be anything other than just a gathering of, of friends and an excuse to hang out late one night uh, each month. And uh, But after about a year, we started to get a lot of traction and people really enjoyed it. And we started to get better and better speakers. And, and I'd spend 29 days of the month working on my product that not a lot of people liked. And I spent one or two days a month working on Star Grind and everybody liked it. So, uh, so after about a year and a half of doing that every month, we started to spend 10 days a month on it, 20 days on the product. And then eventually spending 10 days on the product to 20 days on startup grind. And I had someone in the audience say, Hey, can I do this in my city? I love the brand. I love the values. I love the community. Basically, I thought it was a terrible idea. And I thought he must not have any idea what he's talking about. He said, no, we don't have this in LA. Like we need something like this. And so we started doing it in LA and it worked. And, um, you know, fast forward a few more months, we were able to sell the product that we had been working on and to completely get out of it. And then we just went to work on Startup Grind. And within six months of sort of going full-time on it, we'd gone from five or 10 cities to 30 or 40 cities. It's been about six years, seven years uh, since we started working full-time on it. And that time we've grown to over 650 cities. Uh, we have millions of entrepreneurs in the network. Our goal is to educate every entrepreneur in the world uh, and, and the startup teams that are associated with those entrepreneurs. And, um, and we have about a thousand volunteers that work on it. And so sort of, again, started, it was not the thing, it was a meetup. Um, and it's, you know, it's maybe small and inconsequential as that sounds, but it's, uh, you know, it's what people wanted and uh, unlike the products we were building. And so we um, listened to, you know, people's feedback and have, uh, have had a great ride working on that for the last few years. You just blew through this story and made it sound easy. I want to talk about your startup grind period, though, where you were spending, you know, year after year working on these ideas that didn't really work out. Because I've been there, I spent a long period of my life in that phase. I think a lot of people listening have tried that as well. And it's pretty scary to quit your job and go into this place where nothing seems to be working. What's one of these failures that you worked on and, and maybe a lesson that you learned from it that you took with you into your future ventures? You know, um, I wish I'd kept a journal through that time because so many of the things I think I blocked out. Uh, and I think those lessons would be good for me to remember. Of course, I, I remember a lot of I remember the big things. Um, I, at one point, raised $250,000 uh, for an iPad game, which we launched and nobody bought. I put probably 250000 of my own dollars, into, the consulting dollars, into uh, a social networking product uh, that... Nobody liked or downloaded. Uh, I mean, we had some people, but very small <laughs> amount of people. You know, numerous people that I tried to start companies with. I, I like could not find a technical co-founder to work with me, and I was sort of a product manager and begged dozens and dozens and dozens of people uh, and tried to find ways to work with dozens of engineers to partner with me. Almost all, almost totally unsuccessfully. Uh, my co-founder, who I work with today, is a full-stack engineer. His name is Joel Fernandez. Uh, he and I have worked together for nine years. So that's been really fortunate uh, for me to have found him and to for him to work with me. What have I... like? You asked me for one specific thing like, that I've learned. Like, I mean, just to not give up. I, like, it sounds so cliche. I know it's like the worst advice. But I just... 
really believe there were many, many times where the, the tunnel was completely dark and somehow Joel and I squeaked out of, out of it and got to the next phase. And, um, you know, I mean, I've been rejected by, I don't know how many incubators, like all, like all the things that could happen, like I've tried. And I think, you know, 10 years later, things, some things are working, you know, and, uh, it's not all working. Uh, it's not all perfect, but we definitely have momentum. And once you create momentum, like a lot of things, good things just happen to you, but it takes, it's so hard to get momentum and you just have to survive a really, really long time, uh, in order to do that. And so, you know, you may not be working on a great idea right now. You may not be, you may think it's the best thing you've ever done, but, and no one likes it. But, uh, if you, if you can just figure out how to survive, I think you will get a chance. I believe everyone gets a chance to really showcase themselves and uh, basically a shot on goal. Everybody gets a shot on goal, but it may be that you don't have the right pocket. You don't have the right stick. And maybe you're in the wrong, you know, position on, you know, on, on the field, but just stick it out and, and you'll, you'll get a chance, but it's going to take a lot longer and cost a lot more than you had ever imagined or hoped. And so, you know, make it work with what you got. You know, don't give up is, it is cliche advice, but at the same time, it's underrated advice because like the fact of the matter is most people give up regardless, right? No matter how much people say this advice, no matter how often it proves to be true, it's still really, really hard not to give up. And I think people would benefit from trying to find a way to make it so that they're less likely to give up, right? If that means consulting on the side, if that means building a community of friends and entrepreneurs and founders around you or finding them online just to keep supporting you, like it's so important not to give up that you're really doing yourself a disservice if you don't actively think about how to make following that advice easier for yourself. How did it feel after these years of hardship, of, of wasting your own money, of getting rejected from accelerators, to start startup grind and see this thing actually picking up momentum. I really remember when people started to say like, Oh, I, like, what are you working on? It's like, Oh, I'm working on a single start. Grind. I was like, Oh yeah. And I start grind. I'm like, you do really? Are you sure? Are you just saying that? Like, because, and I would call people out on it, which isn't very nice, but I just didn't believe them. Yeah. Um, and so, but they had, and they had like, Oh no, no, I attended it in LA or I attended it in, you know, New York or something. Um, I saw you did this or I saw one of your videos on YouTube or something like that. It was, you know, it wasn't like this huge overwhelming, you know, financial moment or something like that. But I think it was just that we finally built something as Paul Graham says, we built something that people actually wanted and that they needed. And that was incredibly satisfying. I think too, at some point we had so much failure and we had survived in spite of it that, we just didn't, we didn't really care about all the things that you shouldn't care about anymore. It didn't matter to me that like the press didn't write about us. Like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't matter to me that people didn't know or like what I was working on. Like I didn't care anymore. Like I'd been through too many cycles of screwing up to care. And so I think when people finally start coming around and saying like, Hey, like actually like what you're doing is cool or I've seen it. And it seems like it's like, it's got this momentum. Like, I think because we've been through the valley of death, like that actually meant a lot to us. And, you know, I was still working in my garage for many, many years. Uh, and, uh, you know, to work in your garage and to have people like, oh, it seems like something, like, it seems like this thing's getting really big. It's like, well, I, I work in my garage, you know, um, but to not, you don't care about those things anymore. You just like, you care about the things that matter and keeping customers happy and, you know, and being able to afford to hire one more person, like such a luxury to not have to do every single job in the company anymore. Like what a gift, you know? Um, and no, you, you can't tell anyone about those things, but it just, it, you just, you feel it in the impact in your life and, and you bring somebody that's way better at it than you. I remember saying like, no one can ever sell a sponsorship for Starbrand right? I me. Mean, I remember tell I like, I've had explicit conversations with people about that. They reminded me of this over the years. I can't like, no, why can nobody sell startup crime but me? And then somebody came along and they, and in two months they sold it way better than me. And it was like, Oh, it's just like the greatest feeling ever. <laughs> and it's not that like the feeling you should have had is like, man, you are seriously inept. Like look how much better this person is after two months than you are. But actually it's just like such relief and just joy that like this can work and you don't have to do everything. And 
There's a lot of just personal satisfaction in that. And that's even just with two or three or four employees. Like you can get that basically immediately once you get through the, the valley of death. There's so much good stuff in there. And there's something that you said that like it keeps coming up over and over, which is that your, I guess, perspective of your own success and impact as a founder is oftentimes like understated. Like you're just so your head's in the weeds. Like you're actually doing work day to day to day and you're not really sure like how the thing you're doing is affecting people. So you said, you know, people come up to you and, you know, talk to you about startup grind in the early days and like you didn't even believe that they really knew what it was. And I know so many founders who do that. Like my friend Cadron runs his online community Alpha and people who are part of that community talk to me about it all the time. Like there it's a community for women in tech. And I'll tell her, I'll be like, hey, Cadron, someone told me, you know, this great thing about Alpha. And she doesn't believe me because, <laughs> you know, from her perspective, it's just not as big as it really is. I want to get into the story of how you transitioned from Startup Grind into Bevy, but I'll hold off and switch over to David. David, you ran a community called CMX, and it was a community for people who themselves run communities. So I imagine it's a lot of pressure to do that. What was sort of the origin story? How did you get your first community members? How did you build CMX into what it eventually became? So, I mean, like the thread of community kind of goes way, way back for me. Like childhood, very much struggled to find community. Felt pretty ashamed of who I was. Didn't really find my group. Didn't really find my identity. And I ended up turning to video games a lot to find community. Uh, ended up, I was always very entrepreneurial as well. So like if I couldn't find community, my... I would end up building one or I'd end up creating something to solve my own problem. So in the early days of video games, I built like uh, the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 community was like the first online community ever built. And we had a a very active forum. We were running online competitions. We we had a a whole ecosystem going and I was 13 running it out out of my house in my room. And so I've always been really fascinated by how technology can bring people connection. And as someone who struggled early on to find it in the real world and then found it online, that power was always really impressive to me. And so as as I grew up and new social platforms kept coming out, whether it was like the early days of like Dead Journal, Live Journal, or uh, MySpace and Friendster and all those kinds of platforms, they're... Uh, I, I just became really interested in all these new tools and how they're connecting people. And so when I went to college, I ended up going for business and and started writing a lot about how community uh, was developing online, about how businesses were starting to use these kinds of social platforms to connect with customers. And that ultimately led to me getting first an internship that was focused on kind of digital media and how businesses were going online, and then eventually to my uh, first community manager job. And so like I graduated college, I got this community manager job, I was pumped, I felt like, felt like I knew kind of the space in general, and just kind of assumed that there were a lot of other people doing this work that I could learn from. And, and so when I got the job, I kind of started looking around for training programs I could take, or other people that I can learn from or communities that I can connect with around community management and building community for business. And there just wasn't anything there. No one was talking about it as a profession or an industry. Uh, There were no resources on how to do this work. There were no communities to connect with other people. And so I found myself just figuring it out on my own and then slowly but surely would find other people who were doing this kind of work and just connect with them and ask them questions. And I was living in New York and just started having regular lunches or breakfasts with other people who were doing community work and and just supporting each other. So it kind of just, we found each other all feeling isolated in our work building community, ironically. And over time, it started to grow. The group started to grow. More people started to talk about community there was a, a meetup in New York called the Community Manager Meetup that that started. And so we started all getting together in person once a month. And I ended up co-founding the communitymanager.com. And so we were uh, one of the first sites focused on this profession. 
And so we had a job board, we had articles that we were publishing, we were inviting other people who were doing this work to publish their articles. So starting to create kind of more of a narrative and a messaging around this category of community. And kind of simultaneously, I had also been building other businesses. So after that first community manager job, I ended up running a company called Blogdash, which was connecting businesses with bloggers. I did that for a year and a half um, before joining uh, Zarly as the, the head of community there. And I was running a full community team and running our New York office. Mind you, this was still two years after I graduated and I was a director of community managing multiple people. So I was in way over my head <laughs> in, in a job that was still had no guidance on how to actually do that work and no one knew how to value community. And then uh, I also started a company called Feast, which was an online cooking school, which was very random in my narrative of my career, but an incredible learning experience. It didn't work out in the end. We worked on that for about two years as well. Went through 500 startups. Uh, one of the first batches, we were about six of 500 startups. But uh, so the communitymanager.com was a side project while we were kind of working on that. And then we had talked about doing a conference for, for a long time. But it just never quite happened. Running a conference felt pretty intimidating, pretty scary to run a big event. Didn't know how to do all the uh, logistics. Uh, and it was actually my friend, Max Altschuler, who uh, he ran a conference called Sales Hacker. And so he came to me and said, hey, you know that conference that you've wanted to start for community professionals? I know how to run a conference now. Do you want to start it together? I'll handle all the logistics. And uh, he was going to help with sponsorships and stuff like that as well. And I would handle all the marketing and curating the speakers and essentially like create the, the messaging and, and shape the, the whole event. And so, you know, I said, yes, let's try it. And we kind of just put it together. It was kind of fire festival style, like could have gone really poorly because <laughs> we just started selling tickets and we didn't have a venue or food or anything. And then when we'd make enough money, uh, we would put down a, a down payment on the venue and then we'd sell more tickets and we put a down oh, payment man. on a caterer. <laughs> sounds stressful. <laughs> it was very stressful. But, um, you know, I did, a, I did a bunch of research first and talked to a lot of people to gauge whether or not, you know, they would pay to come to an event like that and got a very positive response all around. So I felt pretty good that there was demand for it. And then when we did it, I mean... The demand was there. We had 300 people came out from all over the world. All of them were practicing community professionals. They were people who, as part of their job, was building community. And all of them felt like they were the only ones who were doing that. They didn't know that there was anyone else who did that work for the most part. They all felt isolated. And then we put them in a room, 300 of them put uh, you know, the best speakers I knew in the space on stage and inspired them. And gave them a message of importance and validation because I said, I think this is the future of how businesses will work. I think community professionals, uh, it's going to be an entire professional industry. I think community is going to be extremely valuable to businesses and essentially validated that their work is important and that it's a growing space, which is something they never heard before. And the response was incredible. Just people felt empowered we we got tons of messages from people that just couldn't believe that event like that could exist. They just like walked in and kind of walked in expecting it to be like other marketing events or something else, but then realizing they were surrounded by their people was really impactful. And so kind of going back to what Derek was saying about momentum, we had felt zero momentum for a while with Feast. And I all of a sudden felt this like huge amount of momentum around CMX and building the community industry. we, uh, My co-founder and I at Feast, Nadia Ekbal, we kind of were on the same page and mutually decided to wind down Feast. And I switched my full-time focus over to CMX. And we started growing the, the community and products that we would offer from there. So first, I want to make a note to people listening. If you are in the market for coming up with an idea, you're not sure what you should work on, notice the similarities between my story with Andy Hackers I wanted to be an indie hacker. I didn't know anyone else who wanted to be one. So I started a community where like-minded people could come together. Derek, similarly, was a founder, was going through all these struggles, wanted to meet up with other founders. Suddenly, the small meetup uh, among friends turned into something much bigger. And that is now Startup Grind, which has hundreds of thousands of people attending events all over the world every year. And David, 
same with you, right? You wanted to meet other community managers and these community managers had never met each other. And just by bringing them together, you created a ton of value. So this is an idea that I think can exist in myriad spaces. Probably everybody listening to, to this right now has some area where they feel slightly alone, where there's others who probably feel alone as well. And there might be some value in bringing them together. The other thing I want to mention is that in both of your stories and in mine, there's this common thread of starting things over and over and over again and something's kind of working out, something's not really working out, but then having like a real success that all of us can tell us something real and meaningful because we can compare it to like our past failures basically and say, hey, this one really stands out. Like this one's got legs. Let me double down on this. David, where did you go from from the point of your first conference succeeding to building CMX into what it eventually became? Yeah, so we immediately uh, like put the profits back into the company. We took just a little bit of our to to pay bills and uh, started planning our New York conference. Um, that conference did not go so well. Uh, we were we were kind of high on the the momentum and and we're like, great, we'll throw an even bigger event on the East Coast now that we know how to do 300 people. Let's go like 400 people, and it turned out like the Bay area was a much easier market to sell tickets in. And there are just more community people here at the time. And in New York, it was much harder to sell tickets. And so we kind of bit off more than we could chew and, you know, put made commitments on venues and things that we ended up not really being able to afford. So we had to make some like pretty massive decisions in crunch time to, you know, we actually switched our venue in like, the month before the event, which if you've ever organized a conference, I'm sure you just had a heart palpitation just hearing about that. It was a very scary moment, but like we were able to make some really big key changes and still throw a, a pretty incredible event. And all of our speakers were happy. All of our attendees were happy. It just ended up being like smaller and we didn't really make money on it, but that was better than losing $50,000, which is the predicament we were facing and that would have just ended CMX right there. So we kind of like survived that and then just kept our heads above water basically. And that, and then started planning the next uh, San Francisco event again. And all three of these ev- first three events were in the same year in 2014. So we threw three conferences that first year, which in hindsight was insane. Uh, now we do one a year. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, we were hungry and felt that momentum and tried to take advantage of it. And so we hosted the the next San Francisco event and that one went really well. The next year we did one in San Francisco, one in New York again. And this time we're just a lot smarter about predictions of numbers and didn't. And, and we were able to make money on each one. So we just kind of like made a little bit of money and put it back in and made a little bit of money and put it back in. So, so the first event we hosted, we created a Facebook group for attendees. And then after the event, we were like, what do we do with this group now? And we decided to open it up to anyone who wanted to join. And so that's now the CMX Hub Facebook group, which has kind of been like the heart of our community for the last five years now. And it all started from that first event, just like a space for attendees to talk to each other. And now there's close to 10,000 members. And it's like extremely active, extremely positive. We do very little moderation it's a pretty incredible space for community professionals. And so, you know, the next five years, I would say like, here's the interesting thing, because we talked about like that momentum and like feeling something that worked and it definitely did. But like the next five years was somewhat of like just pushing through plateaus after plateau. It was like, we're trying to bootstrap this business. We're trying to figure out like a profitable, sustainable business model we're running two events a year. We launched a training program. We started doing some consulting for companies, helping them with their community strategy. We tried all these different programs and products and things. But you know, it turned out to be a really hard space to build a business in. Because even though it's growing, it still has been pretty nascent over the last five years. It's been pretty small. Community professionals are still you know, hustling to get buy-in in their companies and hustling to get budget. And so, you know, when we asked for a premium price point on products, it was hard for community professionals to get that support from their companies. Mm. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> I struggle with this sometimes where like CMX, 
doesn't feel like it was necess- it wasn't like a runaway success or anything like that. It's been a lot of really really hard work and keeping our heads above water over over five years to keep bringing value to the industry and keep experimenting and iterating. That said, I think like the impact we had on the space has been really substantial, and and it's definitely the most impactful work that I, I've ever done. And so like it's it's been worth continuing to really hustle and push through those those hard parts to just like keep getting to that next level, which ultimately led to the acquisition with Bevy, <laughs> which has been pretty incredible. You know, it's only been two months since the acquisition about, and we've already been able to unlock so much more value and do so many more of the things that we've known needed to be done in this space, but just didn't have the bandwidth and resources to do. Now with Bevy, you know, we're we're growing the event by more than 2x this year. It's going to be over a thousand people. We lo- relaunched our local events program. We're relaunching our research program. All these things that were really important that we just weren't able to do. So it's kind of just like the next chapter of of this journey. It's something telling in your story that I think really highlights the value of community is that you had sort of the opposite problem that most founders have. Most founders I talk to They've got their business model sort of straight. They have a business model that makes sense. They have a product, but it's really hard for them to get customers or users or anybody to care. Whereas you were almost the opposite situation where you had a ton of people who were touched by CMX, who were actually impacted, who cared about what you were doing or talking to you about your business, but you couldn't fit a successful business model onto that. And I think it just speaks to the fact that community is so good for growth. It's just so strong if you want to actually build a loyal customer base and user base to organize them into a community. Even if you don't have a business model, it still seems to work on the growth end of things. So a question for both of you, since Derek also had a lot of success with growth, turning Startup Grind from just one small meetup into hundreds of events and conferences all over the world. What have you guys learned through your struggles and your trials as entrepreneurs about growth, about marketing, and about getting people to care about the things you're building? Derek, why don't you go first, since you've been silent for a while? Well, I think that uh, having one clear goal or two clear goals and everyone driving around that, I think that helped us really early on. Our goal was to get into 20 cities. And once we got into 20 cities, our goal was to get into 50 cities. And it seemed to me in my brain that if we could get what we were doing into 50 cities, that somebody that was much more established, that was that had a much bigger brand, that it would be very hard for them to come and displace us if we were in 50 cities, I don't know that, that, you know, there are other people that were doing similar things to us, but we just sort of were relentlessly focused on that one goal. And I moved my office back into my garage. I had a very, I was sharing an office with someone and this just sort of predates all the co-working spaces and everything. And I moved back into my garage and like I worked and I ate dinner with my family and got my kids to bed. And then I went back and worked and it was just around this goal. And we took, you know, phone calls at all hours of the night with trying to convince chapter leaders in different cities around the world to do it. And, um, you know, we're just on Skype sometimes for five, six hours a day, just trying to talk to people and find people that matched who we were and, and try to figure this out. And with lots of, lots of failure people, we thought would be great. It didn't work out. Others who we didn't think would be great and turned out to be great. So I think like having a clear goal, in the early on, once you sort of figure out like this is the general direction I need to go, you don't need to, you don't need to, you know, like Startup Grind's mission now is to educate uh, every startup team in the world or every entrepreneur in the world. That's not what the mission was in the beginning. I had no concept that there were hundreds of millions of entrepreneurs around the world. I had no concept of that. And so, but I could see into 20 or 50 cities. I sort of thought once I got to 50, maybe we'd be saturated across the world. Um, but I knew we could get into 50 and then when we finally hit 50 and then we plotted those dots on the map first, we were like, okay, great. Like it's going to be really hard for anybody else to catch us and copy us. So they should just partner with us. And then I plotted the dots on the map. It's like, oh my gosh, like we're not even in, you know, a fraction of the biggest cities in the world and we're in 50 cities. You know, like we have a chapter in, you know, in Reno or Boulder or something. It's like, sheesh, like we don't even have a chapter in Paris yet or in London. And so it's just like, then our minds sort of start to expand to what was possible. But, but the only thing that mattered was getting into 20 cities and getting into 50 cities. 
And we just were relentlessly focused on that one goal. And then we popped our heads up at that point. And then we reevaluated the goals and set new goals. And I remember at one point somebody saying in one of our brainstorm sessions, we're in about a hundred cities. They said, they said, you know, what are we going to do when we're in 500 cities? And I just, I remember laughing because I just thought it's just not possible to be in five. It's not possible to manage 500 cities. It's not like who does that? Who has 500 cities? Well, now we have 650 cities and we've hosted events in over 800 cities, but we have 150 or so that aren't active. Um, and so we don't, we don't count those. We're trying to reactivate those. But like now we're talking about, well, how do we get to a thousand or two? And that people that we work with, some of the companies that we work with, they're in thousands of cities. And it's like, sheesh, how are you? I mean, I have, I now I like, I think that now, like, how are you doing this in thousands of cities? That's impossible. But I have, I have somebody I'm talking to right now that's literally saying like, what are we going to do when we're in 10, 10,000 cities? And I'm like, this is just insane. <laughs> like, but then you get there and then you're like, oh, like, why did I ever think this was insane? It's totally logical that it could get here. And it's just like the compounding interest of time and energy and, you know, and all of this work over time. And now, you know, many years later, you know, it would be very hard. It, it would be, it would be stupid for somebody to try to copy start brand. Like they should just work with us or, you know, or, or, you know, try to be a partner or something, which people like Google and, you know, and Intuit and Oracle and others have done. Um, or, you know, Stripe's been a, you know, great partner of ours for many years. So like these are the, you know, I think over time your mind expands and grows into, you know, what you can actually be and what this can, can become. But in the beginning, like just one or two really clear, simple goals and just charging at them at all costs, uh, you know, that, that was really helpful for us. Yeah. I think to build on focus. So like knowing what direction you're heading is really important. And then something I've learned is to, to give up control, uh, to give up control to really great people. And that can mean people on your team. And that could also mean your community. So I think like, especially when you're a small indie kind of company, uh, it's tempting to do everything yourself. And for a long time, I, I probably needed to have my hands on everything too much. And I handled most of our growth. I handle most of our things. And, you know, and then eventually like I hired, I was able to hire really great people. Um, so we have like Erica McGill, McGillivray who runs CMX summit, who took our event to a level that I never could have and saw things that I couldn't see because she had a different level of experience with running events and different viewpoints. And that was hard. That was really hard for me at first to give up that control. Cause it's like kind of handing over your baby to other people. But uh, that that's what unlocked that next level of growth. And then same, we, we hired Sam Weber about a year ago, who's, who's now our head of growth and marketing. And he took all of our content and our marketing and all of our metrics and everything to a whole nother level. And so if you, you, you have to be really clear on what your goals are, like Derek said, have that really clear focus and then put really great people in the position to execute on those goals and kind of like get out of the way. Or just try to unblock them and make sure they're set up to be successful. And I think you can continue that mentality into your community. So, right, like Startup Grind being driven by these local organizers who are running events all over the world. CMX has had local event organizers all over the world. Uh, we've empowered members of the community to be admins in the online community and to take more active roles there. We have an entire Slack network that's completely run by the community. And so, you know, giving up this need to control every aspect of our brand and every aspect of the business and, and trust our community members uh, to, to continue to grow it and to take it to that next level, that's really how you grow um, is you, you empower other people to take that, that special thing that you've built and, and, and spread it. Easier said than done, especially as a founder of a tiny company where you've run everything by yourself and you're worried other people won't understand it or care about it as much as you do. Yeah. And I think like we've also probably all had experiences where we handed it off to somebody and they didn't do a great job. And so yeah. we might, we kind of like developed this fear <laughs> from those experiences that we can't hand it off. Like, Oh, they're not going to do it as well as us. Might as well just do it all yourself. But I think you have to like keep, keep trying <laughs> because ultimately that's the only way things will scale beyond yourself. So David, you had a community of community managers. I think 
one of the coolest things about running a community is you just learn from so many talented people, kind of like we're talking about right now. What are some things that you learned from the people, the community leaders and your community at CMX? Oh, I don't know. That's a big question. I, I learned an insane amount. I mean, we've had a couple hundred different speakers on our stage at CMX Summit who have all brought completely different perspectives and voices and tactics and things that they've shared. Um, I would say like everything that I know is a combination of insights that I've learned from our community and, and from the work that we've done. I mean, I, I guess I would say that like I've spent the last five years in this kind of meta role of uh, building a community of community professionals. And now like working with Bevy has been kind of an exciting new experience where I get to actually think about building community for a brand again and focus on customers. And it overlaps really well with, with Bevy, obviously, because like Bevy customers are also CMX community members. It's, it's the same audience, but instead of just building community, um, largely for the sake of community, like with CMX, now there's a Bevy platform, which is this really powerful tool to help them manage their communities. And so, you know, Bevy's still uh, growing and, and at a relatively early stage to a lot of other SaaS products. And it's fun to think about, you know, the, the onboarding experience and how do you create content and materials and support that ensures that people are really successful in, in using the product and how can community contribute to that experience? Um, how can you build a community that makes every single customer who uses your product feel not just supported and not just like they can get answers to their technical questions, but like they are truly valued and connected to everyone else who believes in, in that mission and who's using that product. So kind of taking all of those lessons from the last five years and now getting to apply it to a real business. Derek, what about you? You spent a decade as an entrepreneur. You've run an entire community full of founders. What are some of the things you've learned from that that you've applied to Bevy, especially getting started with Bevy in the early days? Well, I always think that actually startup grind is its own greatest success, uh, that we made mistake after mistake after mistake and then you know, started doing these interviews with these influential and brilliant people who had been there and who had done it. And then you couldn't help at the end of these events, like go home and sort of sit back in a chair and be like, my gosh, like, why am I not doing that? And you compound that. And then the next month you get somebody else new and somebody else new and somebody else new. And so, um, you know, we applied all the things that we learned on, on the stages and from these people. Um, one thing that I, you know, I learned is I've learned is that spending time around these speakers, these very successful people, you know, billionaires in some cases, uh, people on the cover of, you know, Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine or other things. I've learned that these people are as human and as similar to you as just about anybody you know. You know, I've spent a bunch of time on Steve Case's Rise of the Rest Bus. 60 Minutes just did a big feature on them recently that you should check out if you haven't seen it or heard of it. I've spent hours and hours and hours around Steve Case, observing him talking to him, you know, having dinner with him, traveling with him. And the, the overwhelming thing that I learned is that Steve Case, who is one of the, like, the internet's, you know, first internet IPO is AOL, founder, co-founder of AOL. He is no different than anybody. He's no different than my uncle or my dad or, you know, my neighbor or, like, he's got the same issues that we all have. So that, all, that really started to empower me to say, like, wow, like, these people are on the cover of these magazines. And they're having all success, but really like they're, they're, I mean, you know, they're the same, they're, they're human beings. Like they're really not that different from, from, from anybody else. So, uh, that's, that's something. And, you know, another thing that, that I've learned is that despite people being somebody that's at the top of the food chain, despite somebody being really successful and wealthy and whatever, a, a lot of these people, you know, they're still very thoughtful and kind and generous uh, people. And, um, you know, narrative that we have about a lot of, you know, the, the, the founders of Stripe, uh, Patrick and John being at the very, very top of that list. I mean, these, these guys have every reason in the world to be rude 
and to be demanding and to be, uh, you know, high and mighty. And these are some of the most humble people I've ever met. They're also the smartest people, literally, that I think I've ever met. So it's like, it's very interesting to see um, people at who have been incredibly successful uh, in business who are also um, still, you know, just decent human beings. And, um, and that's, that's not always uh, the case that we see in the media. It's interesting listening to you guys talk about the things that you've learned because there's, there's like these salient like events where you hear somebody talk and they, you know, bestow some amazing wisdom or advice on you and then you go home and you ponder it. But then there's like this undercurrent of things that you're not really aware that you're learning, but you look back 10 years from now and you're a totally different person and you realize you've like your entire worldview has changed. Most people listening into this podcast are in the very early stages of their careers as founders and entrepreneurs. Their worldviews haven't changed that much and they're going to be completely different people five or 10 years from now. What advice would you guys have for these sort of fledgling entrepreneurs? How might they change the way they look at this entire journey today to help them be more successful? I, I look at my entrepreneur career as a 20 or 30 year journey. So, you know, what happens to me this week is probably not that important, you know, unless it's something just absolutely crazy outlier thing that happens. But generally speaking, like it's not really going to matter that much. And so I'm not going to get too worked up about it, whether it's good or bad. Uh, it, it happened. It's a dot on the radar and I'll get another dot next week and it'll be better or it'll be worse than the dot was today. Um, but I think when I left EA and started working for myself, I sort of thought like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, I just, I, I, my impression of it was, was more of like, like doing it for all of the wrong reasons. And I think as I've, as, as the years have passed, as the failures piled up, um, and then as a few successes, which is what we spend most of this time uh, talking about is, David and I's successes, which probably the things that certainly like that impacted us the most are, are, and the things that we think about the most are probably the failures. Um, you know, you got to think, what am I going to be doing in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years? And when I talk to somebody, am I treating them that way? And when I'm dealing with a customer, am I treating them that way? And am I, when I hire somebody, you know, I used to think like, man, you, no one ever works at companies for more than two or three years anymore. I have people now that I've worked with. I've mentioned my co-founder for nine years. I think he and I, I hope we work together for the rest of our lives. And I have other people that I've worked with for five or six years. So like now I'm thinking, well, how could I get that person to work with me for 10 years? Or maybe for, can I add other people to that sort of career journey? We can all go through life together. And so I, I think like I now just think about things at a much longer scale and, and I think if you think like that, like you won't get so, so despondent when, when somebody shuts an important door on you and you won't get so, you know, euphoric when somebody opens a door for you that you really need open. You kind of like, you kind of stay in the middle and just realize like it's going to ebb and flow and I'm going to take it as it comes and just keep plodding along. And, and, you know, I'll look up every couple of years and, and see, wow, I've personally made a lot of progress. Wow. My business has made a lot of progress. Wow. The people that work with me have, have really grown as human beings. Wow. My customers, their lives have really been impacted by what we're doing. Those things to me uh, are ultimately like the most rewarding things that I've gotten from being an entrepreneur, not speaking, or I love this podcast, Corlin. I'm really grateful to do it, but um, you know, it's not speaking. It's not press. It's certainly not press. You know, it's not um, the praise that people give me. It's not what, you know, my parents think uh, or, you know, my in-laws think about me. Uh, it's really these core things of, you know, am I personally growing? Are my the team members around me, are they growing? Are my customers, you know, finding joy in my product and success? Um, and, um, you know, is the business, uh, is the business healthy? And is it more healthy today than it was, you know, before when I last looked at it? And, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, people, if they don't have that perspective, maybe, maybe they can start to try and find that perspective if, if it's, if it's good for what they're doing. David, what about you? How do you think your perspective has changed throughout the course of your journey as a founder? And how do you think some of these changes might benefit others who are just now getting started? Well, well, first I, I kind of want to just like 
that what Derek just said really reminded me of a line from um, Ted Reingold, was an entrepreneur, uh, founder of like Catster and Dogster, two of the like earliest, most successful online communities. Uh, he passed away recently, but one of the messages he left <laughs> it was actually an autoresponder that he put up while while he was in the hospital. But one one of the key messages from that was the journey is the destination, and that really stuck with me. It's, it's all everything that Derek just described that I think for most of my entrepreneurial career, you kind of paint this picture of this point that you're going to reach where now you're successful. Now you have the answers. Now you've done it all and you're, you're accomplished and people see you as successful. And, you know, you, you have this like state that you imagine you're going to reach when in reality, like the day you reach that, you're probably going to be terribly bored. <laughs> you're probably never going to reach that, right? Because you're an entrepreneur and you're always going to have more questions. You're always going to have more challenges. You're always going to be trying to improve yourself. And the day that you're not growing and you're not seeing yourself improve, you're going to get really antsy and you're going to look for new challenges. And so just reminding yourself that uh, the journey is the destination. There isn't this destination that you're going to reach where now you have everything figured out. What you're doing now is the point. Your experience now, whether it's good or bad, and that's going to change from day to day or even out or hour to hour, that's what's really... that. That is it. That's the experience. And, and finding that appreciation for that experience is what's important. And then uh, I think one other thing that I've learned... <laughs> Uh, is just to like not take all advice at face value. You know, early on in my entrepreneurial career, and I still do this, where like you'll see someone say something on stage or tweet something about how how you should build a business or how you shouldn't build a business or what you should do to grow, what you shouldn't do to grow. And um, the temptation is to immediately apply that to what you're doing and say like, oh, well, shit, I should be doing that. Or... Um, wow, I've been doing this thing all wrong. What I've actually found in practice is that most advice is not that helpful. You have to take into context where that person giving the advice is coming from. So if somebody's running a billion-dollar company and telling you how to build your culture, that may not be helpful for you if you're uh, just starting your company and you have two employees people coming from different backgrounds with different levels of privilege uh, affect their advice. People give advice based on what they know best. So if you asked a hundred different marketers how to grow your business, the SEO person will tell you to do SEO. The ads person will tell you to do ads. The community person will tell you to do community. And so you're you get all this advice online, offline uh, from mentors, from advisors, and it can really create analysis paralysis and make it hard to make decisions. And so uh, listen to advice, consider it, but always kind of come back to your own truth and come back to what you know and what you believe. Follow that uh, because you have to kind of figure out where your center of gravity is so that you're not constantly being pulled in every different direction. I think that following too much different advice has directly led to failures that I've seen throughout my entrepreneurial career. Yeah, and it would really suck to follow somebody else's advice and have that take your startup to the graveyard because then you don't even have the satisfaction of knowing that at least you did things your own way and you really gave it your best shot. Anyway, I've enjoyed having both of you guys on the podcast. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about your journeys with Startup Grind, CMX, and Bevy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my email is just Derek at startgrind.com. That's my primary email uh, for Startup Grind stuff or just advice in general. So feel free to reach out to me if I can be useful. And, uh, you know, in terms of Starcrime, you can just go to starcrime.com uh, slash about us if you want to learn more about it um, or if you want to attend an event in your city um, and you're not sure it's worth it, just you can drop me a note and we'll get you get you a ticket for a local event. Um, um, but, uh, and I'm Derek J. Anderson on Twitter. And I'm uh, at David Spinks on Twitter, David at cmxhub.com. You can find uh, everything out about CMX at cmxhub.com. You can find our conference there. 
you can read more about the Bevy acquisition on our blog there. Yeah, that's it. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having us. This is great. Yeah, thanks, man. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.